Good evening, wherever you are. Thank you very much for joining us on Just Like the Movies. We are here to talk about Born Identity. M maybe the proto-spy film of the 21st century, is it? I don't know. But uh, before we do any of that, we gotta do job number one around here and ask Johnny how he's doing. Johnny, how you feeling, man? I was born to do this podcast, Mike. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh, you know man. what? Pull the, pull the plug. I'm done. I didn't want to do it. Oh. I was so enthusiastic before. Right. Now I don't even want to do it. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I'm a fucking born loser. I'm sorry. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that Matt Damon was born to play this role, but I'm glad he ended up doing it. Um, but that's enough of that. Listen, I had to get him out of the way. We all know that. But I'm all right, man. You know, same old, same old, trucking along. Spring is here, so hopefully some warm weather is following that, which always leads to good things. I'm a fan of daylight savings. I don't like the idea of ending my workday and it being utterly black outside. So I like the, the days being longer. Um, I lose an hour of sleep literally every night. So daylight savings doesn't do a fucking thing to me. Um, <laughs> now, as far as this movie goes, I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I really enjoyed my rewatch. Oh, good. I'm glad uh, to hear that. I wasn't, I wasn't sure how you'd feel about it or what you'd think. Yeah, I remember when I first... I think there's an evolution that has happened with how action films are made, where when this movie first came out, it was shot much differently than what people are used to for certain action movies. And it had a lot of quick cuts and that sort of thing. But I think that has, that trend has continued so much over the last 20 years. Now this movie has been out for over 20 years that it's gotten progressively, I don't, I guess worse for lack of a better term that when I go back to watch born identity, it's easier to digest than probably when I was first introduced to it when I was 19. And I probably had a worse attention span at that time too. Um, but, uh, overall I, I went in saying like, yeah, I think I, I remember liking the born identity and I'll, I'll start this podcast off by saying like, I haven't watched all the sequels. Um, and you don't necessarily have to for this movie cause they do put a bow on it at the end. Um, uh, but after my rewatch, I am going to go back and check out the sequels, at least all of them with Matt Damon, even though I'm a Jer Jeremy Renner fan, but there's a lot to this movie in, in revisiting it that I'm going to get into here, including having interviewed its composer, John Powell. So, uh, oh, wow. Shed Did some you, light onto I, I, his process. I was process curious about that, too, because I was trying to figure out what that score at the end reminded me of. I guess, like, like one thing that came to mind, it kind of reminded me of the Thomas, the Thomas Crown Affair. Like, all sure. the, like, the hip kind of score that they did with it. I, I don't know how to describe it, because I'm not as great with music appreciation as I should be. Did you see this one in the theater? Do you remember? Um, 2002, probably not. When did it come out? Uh, yeah, it came out in like June of 02, I think. I mean, maybe. Uh, I can't pinpoint yeah. an experience, though. Yeah, I've, I've seen all the Bourne movies in the theater, including this one. I, I, I remember that for sure. And it was delayed, um, thankfully, for once, not because of 9-11. It was because they were... They had some questions about reshooting re the ending and doing all like making a bunch of changes so that's that's it was originally supposed to come out around that time around september of 2001 i think or maybe it was supposed to be a christmas release but then it got delayed because mm. you know they kept uh the, the original ending was at first was going to be a lot more um i guess kind of cerebral like there wasn't going to be like an action set piece at the end then the studio kind of interfered and there was going to be this whole thing with like motorcycles and guys with rpgs and like 
<laughs> can you imagine? Oh, can you imagine geez. that? Like this movie goes from being kind of a, you know, quiet, contemplative, like kind of because like the movie I think tried to emulate Born in that like it was pretty economical, right? Like there was is fairly streamlined. Like it wasn't. Yes crazy like the action sequences i think at the time they were kind of groundbreaking one of the things that kind of struck me when i was watching this again and i hadn't seen it in a really long time but i'd seen it quite a few times the first couple years after it came out i saw all the sequels and all that stuff i i just kind of i was like wow i mean this is it was kind of like you mentioned at the time the way it was shot it was like less digestible for people but then, like, when Paul Greengrass took over and took it to, like, the next level with the shaky cam and people were actually getting, like, motion sick watching the movie. And then, but you see, mm-hmm. like, now I kind of look at it as, like, movies kind of, it's everything, uh, like, modern action movies have kind of derived more from it. Like, like yeah. some of the fight sequences and things like that. Like, I, it, it's not exactly a one-for-one. One. Like, I know when we did GoldenEye, like, GoldenEye was, like, the first spy movie I remembered that had, like, you know, it had that great fight scene at the end with Pierce Brosnan and, and Sean Bean that was, like, a lot more grounded and realistic. And then this movie has the, you know, the crazy, you know, quick cuts and then, the like, the improvised weapons and all that stuff. It was one of the many, many things that rocked about this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. And then in terms of like, you know, 2002, and you're talking about like re- like creating, launching uh, what wound up being uh, a long-running franchise that went well into the next decade. And, you know, it's funny because when you position this movie, which is starting something, against another spy movie that came out that year, you just mentioned the franchise... James Bond, Die Another Day, was the nail in the coffin for Pierce Brosnan's run as that character. So Bond went away for a little while, and Bourne had a chance to sort of step in there until Casino Royale came out four years later. So, And then you can kind of see the influence that the Bourne movies had, particularly on that franchise. To pull pull it back down to earth, for sure. And I I agree. I think this movie is important for for that reason. Also, just the fact that um, you know, the writer, you know, Tony Gilroy, I, cause I had to do deep dives on him for covering Andor for my star Wars podcast, uh, the resistance broadcast. And, um, I have to say, you know, he likes telling stories that happen in action and thriller settings, but he likes, um, making them streamlined and, and very direct human, uh, relatable stories. And when I think back to comparing his styles and I I watched interviews of him talking about this movie and comparing it to the book. And he said, you know, the important thing to remember about Jason Bourne is that when he goes through his experience with his amnesia, he wakes up and he thinks he's just this normal, nice guy because he doesn't have the indoctrination that happened to him leading up to him being this assassin. All the programming, so to speak, it's wiped clean. You... It's like resetting your iPhone or resetting a computer back to its normal settings. And so then when he starts learning all these things that he did, it almost traumatizes him in a sense. And he he has a hard time coming to terms with it as he's going through that as a new experience, so to speak, and remembering what he was, but also going through these human experiences um, with this, you know, a love interest with all these other people he runs into. And he's not having this urge to kill, which... In the end, we find out diverts back to that he was always this human. You know, he had those human empathetic tendencies 
that got him into this mess to begin with because he couldn't pull the trigger and kill that man in front of his kids. So it's, it is a very human story. Uh, I think it's relatable in that sense. And I think that's why it maybe did so well because, yeah, it's an action movie, but you get someone like Matt Damon in this role, which, you know, Tony Gilroy said he didn't write it for Matt Damon. Uh, and there was a, you know, we're going to, I'm sure we'll get into the list of who was up for it. Um, but when you, you get a Matt Damon in this role, when you get those deep human moments, that's when he pays off. Because you can teach a lot of, you know, 30-year-old actors how to do certain things, how to shoot a gun, how to hold a gun, how to do some basic defense maneuvers and maybe some stunt driving or something like that. But when it comes to the scenes that you need to deliver to really sell the human moments of this movie, you need an actor in there. And I'm not saying Matt Damon's the greatest actor in the world, but he's certainly better than, you know, Arnold or, you know, a bunch of others who probably wouldn't have been as good in that situation. Whereas a decade before, we would have been like, I can't see anyone but Arnold playing this character, you know? So it's definitely a more mature take, uh, new millennium, new maturities, and it was right place, right time. And they had, I'm not the biggest Matt Damon fan in the world. I don't like him in other action movies, really. But in this one, it just kind of worked. Yeah, it, it it's interesting reason. you say that because this was kind of, if you think about what Matt Damon was doing before this, like he did Goodwill Hunting and he did Rounders and his characters were always kind of, oh, he was in Courage Under Fire, which was kind of one that probably a lot of people missed. But yeah. in those movies, I mean, he was never, I guess in Goodwill Hunting, like he got in a lot of fights, but he wasn't like a action hero. Like he was, he was a his, tough kid. Yeah. yeah. His characters are always kind of more like cerebral kind of men of action. They're not really like, you know, killers. This was like, right. so if you don't like Matt Damon in action movies, I guess you kind of blame this movie because it kind of got that whole thing rolling. Like he, his preparation for it, you know, he kind of made him ready to do that stuff down the road. Then he did like three more of these movies along with all the other action movies he did. Like he did uh, Elysium, which was the, you mm -hmm. know, the, the follow-up to District 9, which really wasn't that good, unfortunately. Right. Um, I wanted he got to, into I, boxing from this movie. Yeah, yeah. They said he said it changed the way he walked, and it was uh, Doug Lyman's idea because he wanted the he wanted to create kind of an urgency and a directness about the character, about the way he moved. Like if you noticed, I mean, I I couldn't really put my finger on it, but when I was you know doing my reading about the movie and everything, like they they have like you know he almost never looks back, like he's always moving forward and like kind of has his head down, like a, kind of at a bull rush. And mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. I was curious though. You, you said the movie like I was. Uh, you said the movie kind of put a bow on the end of it. You said you said so with the like the movie. I because I don't I don't. So you're saying that the movie didn't really need a sequel. No, I. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it had an out to have a certain sense of finality to it. Whereas, oh okay, if you, if you watch the Born Identity and that's it and it didn't do well and they don't make another one you're not like oh man i really wanted to see what happened next um you know what i'm saying yeah so, yeah okay that that's that's a lot clearer now because like when i was watching it one of the things that stood out to me because like i said i hadn't watched it in several years was that the movie itself kind of felt like it was setting something up like it didn't because yeah. if you look at how little action there is in the movie like yeah they have a great car ch chase scene they have a couple good fights you know, they, they have that shoot, that, that kind of, uh, that tense shootout with the professor, uh, played by Clive Owen, which... Very cool. Yeah, they changed that around a lot, like that whole thing, but... And then the set piece at the end, but then, you know, it's like, it takes him, like, ha kind of half the movie to realize what he's about. 
and get and yeah. get it really on the tracks. Like uh, you know, besides the you know random confrontations with the police and like running out of the embassy and all that stuff. So when I was watching it this time, I was like, wow, if this movie had flopped at the box office, I, maybe the people who liked it or the people who appreciated it at the time would have been pretty disappointed because they're like, man, I kind of want to see more adventures that Jason Bourne goes on. It, it yeah. would have been like a Rebo Williams, The Adventure Begins situation where they were <laughs> so ostentatious. They really thought that Fred Ward was going to be, it's like, oh yeah, I mean, th- we're going to make like three, four, five of these. It's going to be great. That, that that happens uh, often, you know? There's been a lot of movies that are supposed to, like, have these cliffhanger endings, and they're supposed to continue, or, or TV shows now. You know, a lot of TV shows are getting canceled because of the bubble bursting on streaming services, and, you know, people are tightening, uh, tightening up their wallets a bit. Um, so it certainly happens a bunch. Like, and this movie sort of, they, they did that dance perfectly where they set things up to continue. Obviously, the next operation that Abbott has set up um, that we that I know gets explored later on and you know what happens between uh, uh, Jason and uh, Marie you know going forward and it you know is that is that something that that holds and you know like you're saying like he he comes to terms with his past and who he is now and where does that take us so but at the same time you could also just say like well and then they lived happily ever after or like he just goes on to do other things and that's fine yeah maybe they listen to him maybe they don't come looking for him yeah, and, but that's exactly. you know if you, anybody who's a fan of the franchise cut their know, losses. That's, that's obviously not what happens, right? Not what happens, and you know, admittedly, like I said, I if I watched the sequels, it was probably the second one, and I don't remember it, it much, so I I got to go back and revisit it for sure. If I could be a little elitist about the sequels, I would definitely oh. like. I think you're you're on the right track. Just watch the Matt Dave the first two, and then. Maybe watch the Jeremy Renner one like later on as like a standalone thing, but to me, like that doesn't even really tie in as well because it was at that time Matt Damon was so against coming back and they just wanted to keep that that money train rolling with the proven franchise. So then they, mm-hmm. you know, tried to get it kickstarted with Jeremy Renner, which I like Jeremy Renner too a lot as an actor, but it just it just didn't work because it was trying to it, it it wasn't as bad as this, but it was yeah. the same beef I had with Prometheus, which was a much worse movie, in my opinion. But it tried to fucking have its cake and eat it, too, with the source material. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a Bourne movie, but it's not really a Bourne movie. We're going to use his name, and it's the same. It's kind of the same program that he was in, but it isn't. And then there's this weird, like, Flowers for Algernon subplot that they entered. It's like... <laughs> And then, if if everybody remembers having to read that in like eighth grade, yeah, I um, do. But uh, they had that. But then they did the the Jason Bourne movie that came out. I think four or five years after that, it was like in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. And yeah, that movie just felt so completely unnecessary. Like, oh, I, interesting. Okay. I saw it with with our with our buddy Scooby, who at, I don't know if he still is, but at the time was like one of the biggest Matt Damon fanboys around, and he was even like lukewarm on the movie like it wasn't terrible but it was you know it just it just so if you're gonna watch if you're gonna revisit the franchise i would say just do the next two and then just kind of leave it there because i know your free time's kind of at a premium these days yeah it sure is (laughs) all right so so we're looking at supremacy and ultimatum and then just wrap it up yeah just yeah cut it there you know all right um I, i mean i heard they have uh Bruce Springsteen attached to do the soundtrack for the next one. It's going to be called uh, Born to Run. I don't know if that's confirmed or not, but... <laughs> what? 
<laughs> Why did you even go there? I don't know. I don't give a shit. How many more uh, of these am I going to expect? That's it. Maybe one more by the end just to catch you off guard. But now I just said it, so it won't catch you off guard. But we'll see how your memory serves you in the short term. Um, I do have to give a quick shout out to my friend Jake Berlin, who had me on his podcast. Um, and uh, he is a, a big fan of the show. So he wanted to say hi, and he really likes uh, the pod. And he uh, loved our Gladiator episode, I think was his favorite. He really enjoyed the town, among others. So shout out to Jake, and he gave us a nice plug on his podcast. So I appreciate him and his podcasts, uh, Whiskey Jedi and A Certain Point of View. So thank you, Jake. If you're listening, appreciate it, buddy. He does a Star Wars one, too? Yeah, he does. So they do like a reaction show. And they talk about a whole bunch of stuff that's not just Star Wars. And he's just a big Star Wars fan, so he has a show that he does where he um, sips a different type of whiskey every episode and just talks Star Wars. So him and I, talk, him and I, he, we talked baseball and Star Wars for an hour. It was that's great. cool. That's kind of a cool yeah. gimmick. I just tried an interesting uh, bourbon over the weekend that was a gift from one of my cousins. It was it was called Rabbit Hole Bourbon. I'd like never oh. heard of it before, right. but it right it's right not cheap and it's very smooth. But I'd never heard of it. Very good. Yeah. Um, one time we have to, to get like record this on a weekend, and you and I just get absolutely in the bag. Oh, I don't. Mo- I don't know if you want drunk me on. I don't know if I want drunk me recording anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, but yeah, if it gets to a point where we don't have to put it out, we don't put it out. But. <laughs> it's like we we're listening to it. It's like it's like oh my god, this is we we can't fucking release this. <laughs> oh, Mike got canceled twelve times. <laughs> uh, um, he got so canceled that he's uncanceled again. <laughs> I wish I wish I was that cool. But. <laughs> um, all right, so back to this. Um, by the way, Doug Lyman is directing the new Roadhouse. I don't know if you knew that. No, so. I didn't. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so back to that again. But um, no, back back to this movie. You know, the the cast is great. You know, I'm a I'm a fan of Chris Cooper's Brian Cox, um, and um, yeah, you got Save the Last Dance in there too. Save the last dance. Yep, you got to have her in the mix as well. Um, but overall, a really strong cast, and I, I enjoyed what they put together. Clive Owen, as you already mentioned, uh, and uh, Walton Goggins. Yeah, it was really – I for completely forgot he was in this movie. I was like, yeah. this had to be like his first big break, right? It's, he'd been, he had been in like small character parts for six or seven years before this movie even came out, and I guess I never realized it. Yeah, I guess he was. I didn't know he was in the third major league back then. Yeah, the yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I never saw that movie, but I remember seeing him in the trailers with uh, Scott Bakula, right? Yes, oh, it was Scott man. Bakula. Yep. Back no to the minors. Back um, to the freaking minors. But, back to the born identity. Yeah, yeah, this isn't some half assed major league sequel podcast because we'll probably never do that. But Half assed um, direct to video fucking major league <laughs> sequel. That that That's a franchise that. Didn't know what rating it wanted to be. You went from R to PG to PG-13. Pick a fucking lane, guys. God. Well, you brought up Doug Lyman. I'm glad you did because obviously we're going to talk about the director a little bit. Um, You know, and he had just come from uh, directing Swingers. And Swingers was so popular that it kind of gave him the cachet to pursue... A project that I guess I I don't know if maybe you would call it a passion project. He said he'd been wanting to adapt this for a long time. Like he read the novel in high school, the Robert Ludlum novel, and mm-hmm. he wanted to adapt it for quite some time. But then again, you know you don't know if that's kind of something that he that's true, or if that's something people say because they're involved with a project and they want people to think that 
you, you never know, right? It's like it's like a little bit of Hollywood PR spin, whatever. Like you want to take these stories at face value, but you never really know, right? Right. right. He also did go in between the two. Oh, that's what did he do? Go between them? Yeah. Yeah, because he wanted Sarah Polly to be in it, but she said no. She seems a little like I don't know, like stiff. Well, she's more. Um, She's she's more known as a writer now. Like she won an Oscar this past year. Ah, uh, yeah, I saw that. And she yeah. was nominated for another one years ago. I had to look it up because I was curious what she was doing. Because I was going to kind of make a couple jokes at her expense, but um, was she in the piano? By any she was uh, no, uh-huh. no. But she she was in the uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. And then I guess she's kind of no. She's Canadian and she's known as a political activist. So she has, like, that whole thing going on. So if you think she's kind of mm. stiff, maybe it's because she has that kind of degree of seriousness about, like, issues and life, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. You ever, the, only, the, the movie that I, of hers that I know the most, for whatever reason, is that, that weird movie Splice. Yeah, yeah, I never saw... Wasn't Adrian Brody in that, too? Adrian Brody cheats on her with their DNA experiment. Oh yeah, that I remember people talking about that, but I never saw that movie. I actually just it's watched. Um, messed up. Sorry to interject, but I just got I got roped in over the weekend. I forgot about that. They did that sh- that ten episode, um, kind of series about the. Uh, it's a scripted series about the Showtime Lakers, and John Riley uh-huh. plays Jerry Buss. So I just got sucked into that. I watched that whole thing this weekend. How was that? It was pretty good. I, I enjoyed it. It was done by Adam McKay, who, you know, he... And I guess I found out that, Will, like, Will Ferrell wanted to play Jerry Buss so bad that... that And when Adam McKay cast John Riley and said he just... Like, they those guys have been doing movies for almost 15 years together. Like, their friendship's over. Like, Adam oh. McKay's like, he, he's probably never going to talk to me again. But the reason I thought of it was because uh, Adrian Brody's in that, and he plays a young Pat Riley. Which was does kinda, he really? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. He's really good too. Most of the people that are on, in the show are are really good. But well, Pat Riley get a rhinoplasty or something? <laughs> I, I I can't talk. I do. I have an aquiline nose myself, so I'm not gonna make fun of somebody who has a aquiline. Is that the term? It, it's it's a term. Oh. I don't know Roman nose. It's also a name of a restaurant in Jersey City. But <laughs> Roman nose? Yeah. That's a restaurant in Jersey City yeah. called Roman Nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I was okay. talking about Doug Live, and then I got way, way in the weeds, like from bouncing from one topic to the other. But um, yeah, also Robert Ludlum's the one of my favorite bits from The Simpsons when they go to the when Hans Bowman goes to the Crichton King bookstore at the Springfield Airport. He's like, "Do you have anything by Robert Ludlum?" And the guy's just like, "Get out." <laughs> <laughs> but the good news is, you know, they they did make a book out of that, Johnny. And <laughs> the movie doesn't really except for a couple central concepts like having an amnesiac assassin and the name of the program and a few of the set pieces very very different. Almost nothing in common with the original novel because the original novel was tied into hunting a real life terrorist, so they had to modernize it and kind of eliminate that whole thing because you know, we all know how Carl. Like, well, you, you we, don't, we don't all know, but you could look up how Carlos the Jackal got brought to justice. He obviously wasn't killed by a CIA assassin. But right. Doug Lyman, one of the things that was so that that was 
great to learn was, you know, he came from this small indie background with swingers. And as you mentioned, Go. So thanks for kind of setting me straight on that. I, I forgot that came between these two movies. Well, yeah, because Go was in the 90s. But um, yeah, he, uh, you know, being a small independent filmmaker, like he was a lot more hands on. Like, like, for example, you know, he would be holding the camera himself when they were doing like the car chase scenes. And he would make the decisions to which I thought kind of created a unique feel to the movie. You mentioned the quick cuts, but also if you notice, like when people are talking, it is late going to them sometimes. So it kind of feels like you're in the room a little bit, like you don't know who to look at. And he, that was some, something very intentional he did to create, I don't know, kind of a, I guess you would call it maybe a pseudo verite style almost just in those, like wow. just those discussion scenes, like the scenes where people are talking. I guess. You sound like a film snob now. I, I guess. I don't know, but I'm really not. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you, you know but you know my backstory. You know the movies I like. Michael Pitea. <laughs> I don't... Like, if I was a film snob, I wouldn't have been bad-mouthing Prometheus. I would have been talking about all the... You know, because Ridley Scott directed it, so I'd have to be, you know, it's uh, giving him it's the not, fan service. It's not a movie. It's cinema. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> But yeah, and then like you know, coming from that background, you know, he goes from working on movies like that to a movie with a sixty million dollar budget, and yeah. he was talking about how cool it was to, you know, you mentioned some of the great actors in this movie. He's like, oh, if, if he was working on the movies that he's used to coming up, like he was used to coming up on, I'd be like, man, it'd be great if we could get a guy like Chris Cooper. It's like, why don't you just go call Chris Cooper? <laughs> or right. you know one of the one of the visual uh, inspirations for this movie as well as some of the plot elements to kind of modernize the script came from uh the French movie uh well I know it as La Femme Nikita but you can find it on IMDb it's just billed as Nikita so I don't know if they modernized the title over time or they just changed it uh but it was a French movie about an assassin and then the, there was an American remake about it with Bridget Fonda called Point of No Return which was much much worse but but it had a good cover though it did have a good it had a very good cover but uh not a great movie but uh like they like the set designer i think from that worked out because because doug line was like wow wouldn't it be great if we get the set designer from nikita that like somebody at a staff's like why don't you just call the guy and they brought him brought brought him or i think it was a him but i'm not 100 percent sure but anyway so you have that kind of independent mentality on a big budget film, so it it it, it had it, like as you said, it balances those action elements with that character development and story. Yeah, it it's, it definitely does, and um, I I think there's, you know, not to re- reiterate what I was saying, but I think the movie does a good job, and you know, you got to give credit to Tony Gilroy's writing that he he his belief is that in order to write an action thriller you still need to make your characters memorable and you need to care about the characters and i don't mean like care about the characters in terms of like you wish them all well but you you like the characters and like you're vested in like what they developed here and you know just being able to remember characters names or just believing that they are who they are because you know for some people you know, there's certain actors, and we've talked about this, where you see them, and even if they're great actors, you're like, when people talk about that movie, they say Jack Nicholson. You know, they don't they don't say, you know, what his uh, character's name was. Yeah. So, it's, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case with this movie, because 
it's easier in this movie because the name of the character is in the title. So um, Jason Bourne and, you know, and then I believe his like original name is supposed to be like Webb, I believe. Yeah, David Webb. But you you find that out one of the later movies, I think. I don't think they revealed it in this one. Yeah, I yeah I was just trying to look up the character just so I understand like the genesis of it because I'm not reading the book. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, yeah, it's got you know big production backing with Frank Marshall and Universal Pictures. Uh, Matt Damon was pretty white hot at that time, coming off of his uh, screenwriting Oscar win for uh, Goodwill Hunting, which we're going to get to at some point. Um, so there's there's a lot that was right about this. I didn't know about the whole like it was delayed. So they must have filmed this thing well before it came out, um, and yeah, so so they filmed it in fall of 2000. It's saying so you're right. I mean that that the things it's it's got to be so weird for an actor for your movie to come out and you're sitting there promoting it and you're like trying to remember stuff that you have to tell you know Jay Leno or Letterman or whoever that you're sitting on that couch with because that's a long time and he's probably already gone on and filmed other things as he's promoting this thing and I know that's the norm for actors but this is an exceptional gap where you're almost approaching two years almost like um what happened with Top Gun Maverick you know that movie was filmed a long time ago and it comes out you know just last year and it was supposed to come out in I believe 2020 the year of the pandemic so that's got to be pretty wild for that to happen but um I I don't know where I am going to like I'm I'll just say this Mike. I I know you're saying watch the trilogy. I'm nervous too because I don't want to like dislike this more because those don't pay off. But I'm going to stand by what you're saying and stop after the third and and call it. But I guess just let me know because I don't want to get too in the weeds with the sequels. Um what do I need to take away fully from this movie as I dive into the sequels? I don't know, not too much, man. You know, it's like they they do a pretty good job of like, if like it, is Brian Cox in the mix. Yeah, Brian the- Cox is in the mix, and they, uh, you know, they they talk about uh, they, like in the second one they oper- they they do more about Operation Blackbriar. Like it's basically the same thing, but with a different name. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like it, it's like anything. You know, the movie isn't gonna leave you behind. They're gonna assume that you know they're gonna assume that everybody's stupid. So it's like if they if there's something you really need to know from the first movie, if there's gonna be a small flashback or there's gonna be a line of dialogue, I don't think it'll be too much. Because it's kind of a just you know kind of an extension of where it all went at the end. Yeah. But uh yeah. Yeah. the the end of the movie kind of fucked me up. How and so so when Abbott's sitting there at um you know, the debriefing or the hearing, whatever you want to call it. And he's literally in the process of wrapping up his thoughts on Treadstone. And they're like, all right, what else you got? And he moves on to this other thing. And it's like, they're basically just telling us like all that this guy has been through this amnesia, this chaos of his life, not knowing who he is trying to rediscover who he is, what his purpose is, who he actually is as a human being, this whole journey in stressful chaos and action packed, just bonanza that we just went through is just one item on a list of other things that they just skirt right through. Like it's no big deal whatsoever. They complete, he just said, yeah, we're, we're decommissioning that. And, and that's the end of that, uh, that operation. They're like, all right, what else you got? And it's just like, it, I, it's just like one of those things where it's like, I'm not saying they're like, you know, it's an anti-government movie, but it is. And they're just like, this is just a dime a dozen. So there's a billion of these other stories. Granted, this is, you know, uh, a, a a, gl- a glamorized and, and exponentially uh, elevated, you know, fictional version because this guy's like this super soldier thing or whatever. But um, 
it just it just like jarred me a bit how they were just like because usually you would figure in a movie they have to go through this whole big process because it's this big ordeal for the government but they were like oh that one okay next what else yeah well one of the things i was i was reading was how doug lyman used he wanted to modernize the novel and he kind of wanted to inject some of his thoughts about american foreign policy because one of the one of the funny uh, kind of back background elements to this was his father was the guy, he was the prosecutor in the Oliver North case, and he wrote a book about it. So he took kind of his dad's experiences and some of the stories he told, and he used like that Oliver North character to kind of influence the Conklin character played by Chris Cooper. And... He did. He did kind of take. You're right. Maybe it, there is a little bit of an anti. You know, it's it's not anti-government, but there's a lot of ugly things that a state has to do to maintain its power. And I know no one cares what an American thinks about foreign policy because most of us are so ignorant about what's going on in the rest of the world. <laughs> um, but I mean, you can say the same thing about any powerful government, like the Chinese or the you know the Russians or you know the British. Like they're you know it's like they're they're do there's very ugly things that have to be done for the sake of geopolitics. And there's and the movie kind of says that it's kind of like when there's the scene where Chris Cooper and Brian Cox are talking, and they don't really use the characters' names a lot in this movie. Like I think they refer to Conklin twice, and you never hear his first name. Um, and then I don't remember ever hearing Brian Cox's name in the film, but it turns out he's the deputy director of the CIA and he's, Mm -hmm. and he, and he's grilling, uh, Conklin about everything that's gone wrong so far in the movie. This is about 30, 35 minutes in or whatever. And he's like, are you asking me a direct question? He goes, you've never made a mistake before. So it shows that. You know, that all that covert activity, it's like the higher-ups want... They want stuff to get done. They don't want to know how the proverbial sausage gets made. Right. right? So I guess right. that's... The, is that kind of the commentary you were thinking of, or...? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, and, yeah, no one wants to know how the sausage is made is, you know, a perfect metaphor for it. Um, and also, you know, thinking about when this came out, it's easier for us to look back in 2023 and have that sort of like not trusting the government feeling but in summer of 2002 everyone was rallying around the flag still after 9-11 so you know we could easily see it say that that wasn't really the point that the audience was getting out of it it was probably more like yeah they're just doing what they got to do and this guy just happens to be a casualty of that as an assassin you know to keep us safe here at home you know we just got bombed nine months ago we need jason bournes in our life you know <laughs> well, it, we're now now we're like those sons of bitches what it, else are they doing <laughs> it brings up an it's like i i don't know for sure was that so with the context of this movie that had to be his first mission right like his first real mission because oh wow i didn't even think about that because if when, when when Conklin has the whole meltdown at the end, which I remember hearing that in the trailers for this movie, it was like, you're a malfunctioning $30 million weapon. So it's like, do you think it was they put him through all this training and he was really, really promising, and then they set him on his first real operation, and then he just, for what, like like you mentioned, he saw the kids and he choked? And then oh, he- man. I, I like that better, actually, because then... 
he doesn't he you know he never really does anything that criminal or that in inhumane so it kind of it makes more sense because if he was a more hardened assassin i mean i guess because they did an arc kind of like that on uh, boardwalk empire if anybody watched that show i recently rewatched it it was it was okay I, I didn't really like that show that much the first time like it's a really great period piece and they have some great characters and one of the best characters in the show is this guy named richard harrow and he's a ex he was a, he was a sniper in world war ii and he got like half his face blown off and he wears oh. like this iron composite mask that looks kind of looks like his face but it doesn't and That's creepy, uh yeah but they they do this i don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it but they do this they do this really great arc with him where you know he comes back from the war and he doesn't really know what to do with himself and then he ends up you know falling in with criminal organizations and doing you know doing uh, murders for them and then he just completely loses his taste for it so I guess there doesn't have to be a logical point or like not that like there would be in real life, but in a work of fiction where it's like, oh, the guy's, you know, the guy's already done like five, ten, you know, pieces of wet work. Like, why would one more matter? I mean, I there are very few people who know what that's like, you know, to kill someone. Like, I don't. You don't. I don't think. No. But uh, no. (laughs) But like, it's hard to imagine the psychological toll that takes on people. Like it's it's not predictable mm. by any stretch of the imagination. So I guess I, I guess that's yeah. an interesting point of discussion because like when I was watching it this time, I was thinking about it. I was like, man, that had to be his first real mission. But maybe yeah. it wasn't. Maybe it was just it was the first time he killed somebody. And there were kids in the room, and he like you can't really prepare yourself for something like what effect that's gonna have. Because it's like, well, if I pop this guy, I gotta pop all the kids too. You know what it kind of reminded me of a little bit, and this just came to me. Um, like the end scene when he's taunting him and triggering, stirring up his memories, and he's flashing back and sh- and at the same time it's used to show the audience like what happened because we've been probably wondering the whole time like what really happened in that assassination attempt of the former uh, African dictator, and we get to see it, and you see his face, and he's like remembering it and he's pained by it and chris cooper keeps just yelling at him yelling at him yelling at him this conklin character and it reminded me of um when murphy's memories start coming back in robocop oh and i know it's a completely different movie and completely different roles and stuff but that device of you know this person who just went through these massive changes having that recall of what really went down um, to get them to where they are now, uh, just jumped out at me. And I'm not saying that means anything. I just find that like interesting that that just popped into my head because you know I'm not the biggest RoboCop fan. Well, well, it's good you found some appreciation for it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the in works of fiction, at least, they always make a big thing about these brain injuries, like how when there's memory loss that you never know what can bring the memories jogging back. If it's going to be talking to certain people, if it's going to be smells, if it's going to be songs. So for, you know, for a guy who actually has most of the answers to be barking at you that like the, the, the everything's coming back to you. It's like, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, yeah, it, it's, fair. it's, it's the most direct, um, probably one of the most direct possible explanations you can get. Um, I thought it was, I, I found I found this out. I thought it was interesting. The actual born name when Ludlum used it, it was the first documented case of a dissociative fugue state, 
uh, it was some preacher in, his name was Ansel Bourne in Rhode Island in like the 1870s or something. And he, one day he just completely forgot who he was, fucked off to Pennsylvania, opened a store, and he was there for, I don't know how long, like three, six months or whatever. And then just like that, he remembered who he was, had no idea what he did, what he was doing or where he'd been or how much time had passed or what he was doing in Pennsylvania. But that's where the born name came from that you had so much fun punning on early on in the, uh, (laughs) in the, in the, in the, uh segment so yeah hmm. yeah I, like it, things like that are always a little it, it's so bizarre like they say sometimes it's like the the truth is stranger than fiction like when people talk about these it's hard to it's hard to imagine something like that uh, outside of consuming too much alcohol too quickly I, I I can't I can't really think of a time where it's like I woke up someplace and I was like I don't know I don't know how I got there or there's just like not remembering your name or who you are, but you have all these skills and you can speak all these languages and you can beat the shit out of two police officers in five seconds. You know how to do all this stuff, but you don't know where any of it came from. And Matt David's performance, he kind of, he conveys that frustration pretty well, but I'm kind of wondering, I mean, you, you alluded to it earlier, you know, the original first choice for this was Brad Pitt and he turned it down to do another spy movie, spy game that Tony Scott directed, which was, Probably more grounded than this one, but not nearly as much fun. I remember seeing that one in the theater, too. Watched a lot of spy movies when I was in college. Oh. I I don't like Brad Pitt in this movie, because then, to me, it just feels like just another movie. And, like, you know, trying to capitalize on his looks or something. And, I'm not, you know, I like Brad Pitt fairly, as good as anyone in... You know, I'm a big Harrison Ford fan, and you know, I I would say like his role in that may have translated to how he would have been in this movie without a bad Irish accent. Um, oh, the Devil's Own. Devil's Own. Oh yeah, because I mean, his character was a pretty treacherous. He was a you know, he's like a an, uh, IRA. He's an IRA operative. Yeah, yeah, an assassin. Yeah. So, um, I I just don't know that that would have worked, especially that version of Brad Pitt. I don't know. I just feel like people were like. And you know we did we did fa- we did Fight Club you know we already talked about that movie, but I don't know if that would have worked. And and then I know Lyman went on to to do Mr. and Mrs. Smith a couple of years later with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and that has more of sort of the you know humoristic side of things. So I I'm not really sure if I would have liked that. And then I you know I saw a couple of the other names that did pop up that were more of like the uh, usual suspects in terms of like actors casting these types of roles. And yeah, I believe Russell Crowe's name was out there and Stallone. You know, like, yeah, that would yeah, that would have been rough, man. Especially that 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 time, that was like Stallone, like <laughs> still trying to hang on without the career resurgence, and he was doing like direct-to-video Get Carter remakes and a lot wow. of weird, yeah, a lot of weird stuff going on with him around 2000. Is well, he too old to do this stuff? You know, he's in his mid 50s, and same with like Arnold. So yeah, I think I think it, one of the things that Matt David works in this part for is the fact that you know. He, He's he wasn't an action hero at this time. He like so he was just kind of a exactly like he was a thin guy. Like you can even tell on screen, not particularly tall. Like he because that's the whole thing when you're doing uh, spy movies is like field agents, assassins, operatives, whatever. They the whole thing is they have to kind of blend in. That's why it's always so funny in these movies. Like like if you cast Stallone 
as this guy who's supposed to be invisible and not exist and be able to like bounce around and disappear at will. It's like, it's like, what is this like really this like, like just juiced out of his mind, 50 year old <laughs> with a head full of copy toner. What's he doing? <laughs> like, like how is he like you put Stallone, you put Stallone on the ground in Paris and he's speaking French in that accent. Like, I mean, do you really think that's going to work? Because I know Matt, one of the things Matt Damon did in this part was he was, he constantly practiced the, um, the foreign language stuff he had to speak. Now they, they had him speak in little sentences, which, you know, is, you know, makes sense for the story and for production and all that stuff, just to have him not go, but not do like the whole movie in French. But, you know, he took that time to make it sound like somebody who had been trained very well in all these foreign languages as opposed to, you know, in other movies, which I'm not going to, like, throw anybody under the bus, but, like, in particular. But when somebody's doing, like, especially when they're trying to speak, like, Russian or, or German or something, and it just, it's like, you don't even speak the language, and it's just like, oh, man, that is, oh, that's terrible. Like, there's no way... <laughs> that's, that's what yeah. it's, and so like Stallone I think doesn't like somebody like a Stallone doesn't really it would be really hard for him to sell that I think on top uh, yeah, of the I, whole appearance thing yeah I, I think at that time Stallone was definitely not being taken seriously I, I think that would have been a complete misfire in order for this movie to be taken seriously versus like here's another Stallone action movie just add it to like it's just like another one just like change out the name yeah, on it it's, it's just rambo it's... but in paris mostly yeah exactly and then zurich yeah. part of the time um yeah 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 russell yeah. crow i you know as much as i like russell crow i don't think he would have been a good fit for it either like he just <sighs> man right off the heels of gladiator though that probably would have been something they would have considered very seriously but i i do agree though because he's sort of um especially off of gladiator you know has a tough reputation and I think the subdued nature of seeing Matt Damon as someone that you could easily conquer and then get your ass kicked by him mm. is a part of the charm of this movie because every man like you and me watch it and we're like, all right, he's like this regular dude kicking some ass. Um, so I, I I just think, and again, you know, it's weird because, you know, Good Will Hunting, one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, but I'm not the hugest Matt Damon fan. Even then, in The Departed, I was like, he was all right. He was fine. You know, he hit his marks and stuff. But I've never been, like, blown away by a Matt Damon performance. And I don't buy him as this big action hero. But in some t- I think something about this movie um, just works because he's not who you would, would expect to have been cast in 2000 to play this this role in an action thriller. Yeah, like, like Russell Crowe, for example. Like, there's the one scene where they're trying to finesse the hotel bill out of the... like, And then he just gets pissed off at the, at the concierge, just rips a phone out of the wall and throws it at him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I like Matt Damon outsmarting me and, like, being, like, you know, right. putting someone down using his mouth, you know? Um Using his words. Sorry, you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying. No, I, I, mean, he, I, did, it, I, did, I wasn't even going to get there until you put the extra emphasis on. That's not what I meant. Yeah, that's definitely not what I meant. <sighs> but you get my point. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's a good casting choice there. And then in terms of everybody else, you know, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm a big fan of Brian Cox. You know, I'm very excited to watch the final season of Succession, and I've liked. Is that going to be the final one? 
Yeah, this is it. Dude, this it's it. you know, Brian, it sucks because Brian Cox, I don't know how famous he was when he was younger. I just always remember him being like an old man. Like even in and he got weirdly typecast. Like I, I was I remember him playing a role very similar to this in he was in The Long Kiss Goodnight, which was also about an assassin with amnesia with Gina Davis in it. And he was the same role. Oh, like, yeah. Like, he was, like, the he was the guy who ran the program. And then he was the same type of role in that in that Steven Seagal movie, The Glimmer Man. Like, he was a... Like, so he got oddly typecast during the 90s as, like, this shady kind of, like, government bureaucrat who deals in the murkier side of, like, covert operations. Well, even uh, X2. Yes. You know? Yeah, that, that too. Uh playing striker um but it's so funny when you say that because brian cox like he was at he's like a london trained actor with certifications and stuff and he knows the craft but then you see him in and the youngest i think i've seen him was you know, probably manhunter yeah collector but even then he looks like a, he like you and i are 40 he he looks like he's well older than us and he probably wasn't but my point is like with his career it's so funny because he was in you know, Super Troopers, which is a low-budget comedy that did way better than anyone probably thought it would. And then you got The Ringer. He plays, like, Johnny Knoxville's uncle or Oh, some I shit. never saw that. Okay. Like, this hard, like, just a bad movie that you you could never make today because they make fun of people with special needs. No way <laughs> no, zero chance. There's so many things that even came out 10 years ago that you just couldn't do today. The Office tv show probably wouldn't be able to be made today nothing can be made today everything sucks today it's like it's like yeah that that phone in jello that's oppression you can't you can't show that it's like what like even like your bad guys in a tv show have to have a moral compass you'd be like you know they're like killing people but they're like but i'm not gonna say that word it's like oh, oh okay <laughs> it's thank you thank you murderer man yeah why can't our <laughs> village just be dumb and evil <laughs> And yeah, that yeah, dumb say encompasses baby. not being sensitive yes, to political yes, stuff. Yes, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm I'm t- I'm taking us down the trail here. But yeah, Brian Cox, like he does like those like really crappy like little comedies, but then he's doing like these other big things, um, and it's just funny because it's like you would never. I don't know, like <laughs> he should have more prestige behind his name than he might because of some of the like choices he's made but he also may just not give a shit like he does he's the voice of mcdonald's right now yeah and he was in uh one of my favorite video games of all time was this game it came out around the same it came out about a year after this movie it was called manhunt for ps2 and the whole movie it was made by the same guys who did grand theft auto and the whole game is about you're this guy that they they fake your execution so they could put you in snuff films and each level is you going through and killing people and it's being recorded so it can be distributed. Yeah. And Brian Cox was the director of the snuff film. So he's like the guy talking you through all the stuff you got to do. And then like the, you know, the, but like the he's thing Max Orbison. What? He's Max Orbison. No. <laughs> no. I start with a medium close up of the cock and widen out to an establishing shot. Genius. No, I was, you wrong. Yeah, if you go on YouTube and you you search Manhunt, like, because I always thought it'd be a it would be really cool if Manhunt got adapted into like a miniseries or something. But Brian Cox is in his eighties now, so I mean seventy six. What seventy six? Seventy six. Oh, okay, so but still, I mean, it's like if you want to 
you want to have the voice of the actual voice of Starkweather in that's the name of the director from Manhunt. It's like we got to get a move on here. But that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is funny how like these guys that you think of as thespians, like like Ian, yes, Mc, like Ian McShane too. Like he yeah. did. He, you know that guy's like a serious heavyweight British actor that he just did all these like like he was in Hot Rod. Like <laughs> that's a good point. Which, man. Which, and, uh. Al Pacino doing the uh, my name's Dunk, as in Dunkachino. I did not. I didn't even know about that one. He he did a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. Where he does a singing dance about the Dunkachino. Holy fuck! And hey. for some reason, Dunkin' Donuts had the sack to call Al Pacino and see if he had interest, just because Pacino is the end of cappuccino. <laughs> and he was like, "How much?" <laughs> I'm fucking in. How much work is it? Oh, you'll be on set for like an hour tops. <laughs> We're going to film it at your house. We're going to build a fake. You don't even have to leave home. We'll build a fake Dunkin' Donuts in your house and you could do it. And he's like, can I say she has a great ass? <laughs> and they're like, no. He's like, I'm fucking in. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm 100% sure that's exactly how that story went down. They are making heat too, though. Apparently, so yeah. That I, I can't. I can't even like really entertain that. Honestly, I feel like every fucking movie that we've done that is thirty years old, all of a sudden there's a sequel. There's gonna be it. a really ill-advised sequel for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, where are we at? We got the, so there's Gladiator. What else? Gladiator, Roadhouse. Road, ro- mm. uh, we're getting Heat Two. Um, I mean. Just go down the list. I'm sure there's others that we've done that they're that they're going to be doing either a remake or a sequel to. Oh, that. I hope we're getting an Austin Powers four. I can only hope. Oh, <laughs> and they bring Goldmember back. Is it is it is it Mike Myers legitimately sixty years old now? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think he That'd is. Be, that's a rough sell, pal. He, yeah, his well, his like second act as an actor has kind of been doing like these really blink and you'll miss him, uncredited like cameo parts oh yeah they like slap a prosthetic nose on him yeah he has a handful of lines or like like when he's in glorious bastards like he was in the movie for a few minutes he's not even in the credits or whatever right and it's like hey i thought you guys were doing the born identity you've been on this tangent talking about (laughs) ill-advised sequels and like how the al pacino thing went down (laughs) how the al pacino dunkin donuts commercial went down hopefully hopefully they're they're enjoying it i hope so too yeah so, so what do you think in terms of the, the rest of the cast? What do you think of our female lead, Franca Potente? Franca Potente, yeah. She, um, I think, she, I, I don't know what she really has done recently, but I remember she was in this movie called Run, Lola, Run, which got, it was one of these foreign films that the critics here really liked, so it got a lot of attention. And she got cast in this movie because... Well, Sarah Polly passed. That was Doug Lyman's first choice. But then he, I guess for some reason he started thinking he wanted to cast somebody because the movie was set in Europe that was not as well known to Europe, but to American audiences. Um, and they, they put her in it. Because in the, in the book, she's Canadian. And she's an economist. She's not like this German hippie chick. But like I said, the mm-hmm. book... very. I mean, Doug Lyman didn't even have Tony Gilroy read the book before he wrote the screenplay. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's because of this movie too that I always think of Tony Gilroy as like an espionage writer. Like all of his, almost everything he's involved in has some element of espionage or like 
like some kind of intrigue in it like Mike, michael clayton yeah michael clayton like he did this movie i think he actually directed it too it was called duplicity and it had clive owen and julia roberts in it and it was about corporate espionage and it was yeah, and, and it was funny because you never that was I, I kind of studied some of that stuff in school, and it was like that you never see movies about that, and then the movie he, didn't do very well, but it was like the, I remember Clive Owen because it was like a heist movie but with intellectual property. So if you think about it, it sounds kind of boring, but it could be really lucrative. Like I remember Clive Owen's big idea in the movie was he wanted to steal the the formula for the first frozen Hawaiian pizza. Because nobody had fr- frozen Hawaiian pizzas back then. Now there's a ton of them, but um, wow. that was like his big. That was like going to be his one last score was stealing the frozen Hawaiian pizza formula in that movie. But, Jesus, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, t- Tony Gilroy, you know, he <clears throat> just like what I know from him, especially with Star Wars, like he he gutted Rogue One and like rewrote a lot of that movie. Um, they brought him in to like save it and he directed a lot of that and then that's why he went on to do the andor series but in like seeing him in person at at the conventions and hearing him talk and be interviewed he i've never heard anyone with stronger conviction and less and and who gives less of a shit what people think than tony gilroy he's just kind of like this is what we're doing this is why i'm gonna be candid as fuck about it and you're going to like it. And that's the end of it. And he's, and he, you know, he's more of that way now in his sixties, but even in his forties doing this stuff, he really liked the idea of like, he knows when you're, when you're making a movie and you do it based on that's adapted from a book that you can't, if you try to do it and rep and give you everything that's in the book in a movie, it's more than likely going to be a bad movie because it's going to be too long. And then you have to cut stuff and then your continuity and your flow with the characters is going to be all chopped up and messed up. In the interview from when the movie came out, he had said, like, we only have a finite time to tell this movie. The movies, there's a lot of white on the page. And he's alluding to the director um, making a lot of choices about a lot of the sequences, especially for action thrillers. He's like, you got to make sure that you sell your audience on your characters and you make, you make them likable and, and memorable or none of this matters. And I think that's where you get the difference. Um, I'm not saying Doug Lyman isn't, he's the most important because the director, it's his vision. But I think with Tony Gilroy writing this, that's where you see the difference between this and maybe the other Bourne movies that he wasn't involved in or this and like what happened to James Bond. We joked about it, but Die Another Day, like you go from Goldeneye, say, say you watch Goldeneye and then watch Die Another Day and you're like, two just completely different movies what happened in this progress how do we let this devolve into this to the point where they had to completely reboot the greatest spy franchise of all time and then the same year you get this spy movie coming out and it's nuanced it's smart it's quick it's sharp it has action but it's also like wow that's not completely over the top and it's supposed to be because of who this guy is but I believe it for some reason. Yeah, I think the only thing that really kind of... They really did kind of ground it pretty well. The only thing that kind of... That I, I noticed on my rewatch that really bothered me was like the tracking device slash listening device that he had. I have one too, so I want to... Yeah, go on. So, like, remember at the end? So he he gets him to go to that meet, and the whole plan was just to ta- like to put a tracking device to figure out where the safe house was. But then the, the fucking thing on the outside of the car can hear everything that's going on on the inside of the, of the, of the van... 
while it's driving at highway speed. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. As it's right by the exhaust. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> Was that yours too, or did you have another one? No. So mine is um, very momentary, but it just looked really bad and made no sense. And The CGI movie, when the body hit the ground? We're getting, you're getting there. Uh. So when he catches the guy, and instead of being able to interrogate him, the guy jumps out the window to his own death. Mm-hmm. The way that guy just rewatch the scene. I beg anybody. Rewatch the scene where the guy jumps through the segmented window pane framed French doors. How he jumps. How that door disintegrates. Oh, okay. And how his body flops over the railing like the dummy humor in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about how he was moving around because you because you know in the fight he broke like his arm and like one of his knees. Whole, that 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 whole segment. Oh, okay. I'm like, holy fuck! They must have cared so little about that character's death that they're like, let's check the gate. Oh shit! Uh, <laughs> we don't have time. Just fucking leave it in. We'll deal with it later. Because it is so stupid that it looks like it's out of an Austin Powers movie. Or it's like one of the things the studio didn't bitch about. So they just like, oh, fuck it. We got all those other stuff we got to deal with. Like, <laughs> Or they filmed it and they forgot that they were supposed that guy was supposed to kill himself. So they like brought him back for a reshoot. Or just got like a stunt guy. And he just like flops through this door that probably shouldn't have like... A, like if you tried to jump through that door, nothing would have happened. He would have probably hurt his head and he fell down. But in, a, in an action movie... Anything could happen, but the way they filmed it, and then the way his body just hits the railing and flops over, like like Will Smith getting thrown out of a club in in Fresh Prince, <laughs> it is so bad. And that's the only shot in the movie where I'm like, how the fuck did this make it into this major motion picture by Universal? Well, I mean, they were already over budget by eight million dollars, and like like I mentioned, not to harp on it too much, but they had they did have to rework the ending and reshoot a bunch of things and Yeah. So yeah. I mean like that it's like, well that's it was ha- it was it was a joke, but I think seriously, like like that could possibly be it's like, well the studio didn't bitch about this. So I'm just saying for just for our it. audience, if you're the type of person who watches the movie after listening to our podcast, uh, I either way, we always say it's cool if you watch the movie first, that's what we do. And then listen to us. That's cool. Especially, obviously, if it's the first time you're watching the movie. But if you listen and then watch, that look for that scene where that guy jumps out the window to his own death so he doesn't have to get interrogated. And and you know, tell us that that is not absolutely stupid and ridiculous looking. <laughs> yeah, it is tough revisiting some of these movies that are like 20, 25, 30 years or older. Oh, you know, yeah. 30 years old or older than that because... Then you start to notice like some of the stuff. It's like, man, this that those effects really didn't hold up, or you know, I mean, that... yeah, we, we we talked about that with like some of the dirty Harry scenes and stuff like that, and that and that's fine. It's still I still enjoy it, yeah. and even like laughing at that scene made me like it because I I had fun with it. So it's, yeah, it's... And the fight scene, but before that though was so awesome. Like with yes, the, you know the way because that that guy that they picked to play that assassin, they picked him because. He was an expert in the fighting style that they trained Matt Damon in. So it would and be... And a threshold for pain that seems similar as well. <laughs> I'm No, I, no, I'm being serious because he pulls the knife out of his hand and doesn't even flinch. Like, there's something about uh, how they channel these guys to be able to 
deal with certain levels of things that a normal person can't, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they, they, they that's, a, that's a good observation. They did make, um, like, like I mentioned with Matt Damon, like, like how they made him, you know, kind of move like he like he was kind of a bull in a china shop like not looking like looking forward never looking back always charging forward and and one of the things Doug Lyman said that he wanted to work into the script was that he wanted he didn't want it to have the label of a thinking man's action movie but he wanted it so that when Bourne was in situations where the tension got ratcheted up it was like he would get more calm and he would come up with these solutions to things very quickly and he said like when he when he was you know spitballing ideas with tony gilroy or whatever like it would take him weeks to come up with something that that would equate to like a couple seconds of screen time and then and i think in this move like in the later movies one criticism i guess you can make without getting too too bogged down with it is that jason Bourne's skill at like counter surveillance and evasion of the authorities, it almost becomes like a parody of itself. Like, it, it, it like it, it starts to be like okay, like he's he 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 has met like there's this one scene in one of the later movies where he's like navigating this guy through a train station and he's telling him when to move so he doesn't get picked up on cameras. And it's yeah. like it's really cool, but at the same time, it's like is anybody really that good at anything? And in this movie. They kind of strain that line a little bit, but then they have that scene where it kind of breaks the tension where he comes up with that insanely elaborate plan to get that hotel bill. And then he sends uh, Marie in with that huge, like he was telling her all this stuff, do this, do that. And then call, you know, like, it's like ridiculously complicated. And then she just comes out with it. And he's like, what happened? And she's like, oh, I, you know, he was smiling at me. So I just asked him for it. And I said, I was, I was his assistant. And he's just like, and it's like kind of like a beat of comic, and he's just like, "Oh, well, that was smart," and then it just goes to the next thing. Like they're like walking yeah, away with the information they need. That also could be like you know a commentary on the fact that he's sort of like lost touch with like basic human interaction. And yeah, like that too. Sim- I the mean, simple path, the simple path to just ask somebody for something, and like everything he's thinking of is this sort of government agent assassin mentality, where it's like, yeah, I could have just walked in and asked for it or something. So yeah, and. I, I, I like what you're saying about the infallible hero and we do like to see them mess up sometimes so that when they do succeed there's the payoff like a like a John McClane versus a John Matrix in the commando you know John McClane screwed up a lot and it just made us want to root for him more um, born teeters on the more John Matrix side of things where he's always right and always getting it right and always one step ahead um, but I think there are moments um, that he still seems like a very vulnerable character, especially when he's like sitting there like, and there's that scene where they're in some restaurant and for some reason they're the only people in the restaurant. And he's telling her all these things like, I know all the license plates and the cars outside. I know that guy weighs that much. And I know that woman is left-handed. And, and he's like, I, I don't know how I know these things, but I don't know who I am. And yeah. Then, I think and, and it's like, I think audiences like to see that stuff in movies to a point and TV shows. And then after a while it starts to become like, like I said, it becomes kind of almost like like comical. The uh, the Liam Neeson problem, like you know, ever since like that movie Taken, which probably like no one expected to be such a success, and it becomes this thing, and it spawns sequels, and then he continues to do those types of movies where he's just this guy who just knows how to get stuff done, and you know, it's just, I think that gets overdone a bit, and people can't connect with somebody who's like impervious or perfect or just too smart. 
Um, and, and I think maybe, you know, to tie it back to, to what we're saying about how this movie sort of cruises alongside the pathway of James Bond is they went back to sort of making James Bond way more human with the Daniel Craig series. And to your point, which I'm the more we talk about Born Identity, I'm really beginning to agree with. And I think it's a dynamite point that you made is that maybe James Bond was inspired by what this movie did because one, it made money, which is more important than anything <laughs> when it comes to making movies. And two, it didn't insult the audience's um, intelligence, but also it didn't go the other way too and, and, and go too far. The thing with so, the James Bond movies though, sorry, because so I know you were kind of, I didn't mean to interrupt. I rounded you. it out. You had me, um, you know me. Yeah. But the, the thing with the James Bond movies is with every new Bond, it kind of went that way. Like the movie started off and it's like, oh, okay, the, you know, there's this, there's some, you know, there's a kind of a ludicrous story, but it's like, it, it's kind of, gra- but then it, it just gets more and more out of control and over the top and they introduce like too much comic relief. And then it seemed like they had to start over with a new actor. Like they kind of did like, like, you know, even though it wasn't that bad of a Bond movie, like you only live twice. It's like you have Sean Connery disguised as an Asian man. Come on, what are we doing? And, you know, like Roger Moore, you go from, I don't even remember what the first Roger Moore movie is, but I know my favorite one was The Man with the Golden Gun. And then, and I think that was just because Christopher Lee was so good as Scaramanga, and Scaramanga was such a good villain. Uh. <laughs> but, by the, but, but then, like, his last movie was View to a Kill, and he's so old in that movie. The movie's so ridiculous. And then, like, the, the, like the final set piece is in, like, a blimp. And, like, Grace Jones is there with Christopher Walken. It's like, what the fuck happened? How did we get mm-hmm. here? Yeah, and, I agree. And it's like, and it took longer. when the, You know, it's not like when Pierce Brosnan, when they did Goldeneye, which is one of my favorite Bond movies. And then they went to Die Another Day where they had, like, the worst CGI surfing in the history of CGI surfing. Like, it <laughs> oh, made so it made Blue Crush look like... I, I, I can't badmouth Blue Crush, but... Uh, you know, made that movie look positively, you know, picturesque. I thought you were going to say it made it look like Point Break. Oh, <laughs> when are we doing Point Break? When is that Give me happening? two. Give me two. <laughs> are we doing that next? No, I. No, I think I know what next. we're doing next, but we'll have to we'll have to wait a little longer, have a little more discussion about the boring day. But yeah, like we got really derailed talking about Franco Patent, who I thought was like I remember everybody thought she was so hot when this movie came out, and so did I. And now it's like I kind of it's that it's not like she's ugly or anything, but I don't get it. Now. By the way, I love I'm sure there's people who are listening in our audience that when I when I gave my first attempt at saying her name, uh, me forgetting that she was German, and I go Potente. <laughs> I've done that before. I have. <laughs> I've had, I have a, I have a, I, I know a guy who, there's a beer, uh, it's spelled G-O-S-E, it's a type of beer, and it's pronounced Goza, but he pronounces it Goze, and oh. it's one of those things where it's like, I can see why you make that mistake, and I probably wouldn't even know that if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't around beer people all the time, but there is that yeah. thing where I guess it's kind of because there are so many Spanish speakers in this country, and our neighbors to the south are Spanish speaking. That maybe when you see a letter with a, a word that ends in e, you want to put that a on the end of it. So it's uh, yeah. I'm trying yeah. to let you off the hook, and I'm being like really uh, long winded about it, it as I usual. I fucked it up. I but, fucked it up. No, it's all right, man. It's it, it's tough with those, and I probably didn't pronounce it right. I probably just think I did. 
But yeah. I'm doing it with confidence for once in my life. So that's uh, really getting <laughs> Run with that. Chase yeah. that feeling, Mike. Yeah. Because I was trying to think of what else Franca Patent was in. Like, I know she was in... Um, she did this arc on The Shield that was really good. Which is oh. one of my favorite TV shows, which has Walton Goggins in it. So... I still gotta watch it. I still gotta watch it. Yeah, you, I, you gotta put that on your list. I mean, it's gonna be kind of a. That's a lot. That's a lot, though. It's like seven episodes. It's like seven seasons. Uh, the some of the episodes are like well over an hour long. Because you, you watch Sons, you watch Sons of Anarchy. You Son, know the yeah, drill. exactly. And that, yeah, I really was, liked Sons. Yeah. Yeah, and this was Kurt Sutter's show before that. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I gotta check that out. Yeah, I'm not familiar with her either. If, I, if I'm being honest, so I'm trying to look at her. IMDb page and you know there's probably a lot here that um people like but that weren't on my um list to watch so what do we uh, got uh like horror movies you know she's in oh she was in that movie what was it anatomy right she was in anatomy 2 oh anatomy and anatomy 2 no, that movie she was, was freaky the Ana- conjuring 2 uh she's in um she she had a small part in blow um so yeah i mean yeah i don't know she, uh, a lot of stuff muse a lot of stuff i don't even connect with right now and then tv she did she, you know, she did a decent amount of TV oh yeah i completely forgot about that anatomy movie because that was when i was deep before netflix was just all streaming basically like when you were just getting dvds in the mail i remember i went through this period where i was getting a lot of weird foreign movies <laughs> and that was one of them. I remember watching that one. I was like, and it, it's actually a pretty scary concept. Like, I know I said I don't like horror movies that much, and but that was one of the exceptions. Like, it was, there you go. it was pretty wild. But uh, yeah, you, it was funny you were talking about. I wanted, there was another point I wanted before we get back to the film, kind of wrap that up. But about Netflix, you were talking about. I read an article that talked about how people like one of the reasons that Netflix is struggling so much is because people have gotten hip to the fact that they don't really support shows. So they'll put a show on, it'll be on for a season, maybe two, and then they'll cancel it. So why are you, like, like people are getting hip to it. So like, why subscribe to Netflix for the Netflix originals when they're, when there's like a 90% chance that it's yeah. not going to go past the first season? Usually a show will get greenlit for two seasons and then, um, yeah, they've been axing a lot of stuff and then they're, digging their heels in the sand and instead of saying like we got to cater to our subscribers they're going the other way and penalizing subscribers because now they're trying to do that thing where you can't log in and you know you can't share your passwords when they've been on record in the past when things were going great saying like a good friend shares their password on their official like social media accounts and now they're like uh did we say that bleeding out uh but that's every you know all the streaming services disney plus took massive losses last year well Uh, they were giving that shit away with everything they had to expect some kind of downswing yeah it's like yeah it's like they like when i when i replaced my cell phone recently they were like oh do you want to do this you get disney plus and espn plus i'm like no i'm good apple apple apple's given the you know you get the free trials or whatever yeah um i actually have one now so i can watch the new ted lasso and the harrison ford show that's on there but and I even set a date on my phone, like, make sure you cancel Apple TV on, you know, June, whatever. But, you know, a lot of them aren't doing well. I, you know, Peacock probably not doing all that great when they try to do their ventures with, like, WWE and that sort of thing. And there's a bunch that just aren't good. 
you know, I don't know anything about Paramount Plus. Um, you know, HBO's rebooting what theirs was, and it's just a lot of. It's I don't know if the bubble bursts or not, but it's a, it's a mess. But it's just funny. Um, It'd be funny if like five or ten years from now, like all these streaming services end up consolidating, and then there's only like two or three to pick from, and then we're just right back where we started. Well, like, and and uh, to segue back to the movie on that on that tone. I remember when I was watching this thinking this was like today, if they made this today, they would easily make this a fucking show on HBO and it would be 10 hours way too long. And there'd be just so much fucking nuanced bullshit that we don't need that we're getting everything we need right here in an hour 50. That would be one episode of this show. There'd be a whole episode where he's like hiding out in, you know, in the attic of a, of a, an apartment building or something, you know, it's like, that would happen today. And there's a lot of shows that are just like, like they're just like, yeah, we're just going to keep making, we're going to fatten it. You're going to give you your, your core story. We're going to fatten the hell out of it. So you think you're getting a lot of content and you're getting the price you paid for your subscription. And I think people are getting wise to that too. Um, there's still great shows. And I think there are shows that do merit that like your game of Thrones type stuff. And even the last of us, which I'm just getting into now, but um, and I didn't play the game or anything, but like, I think there's just some shows where like the, the made directly for things, like some of the Netflix shows that me and my wife tried to watch. I'm like, this is such a fucking slog. I can't <laughs> even get through this shit. Just make it a goddamn movie. Just get, it's like, it's like when you're talking to somebody and they're telling you a story and you know how that story is going to end. And you're like, I just want to kind of tell them that I know exactly what they're about to tell me. And then they go on for 12 minutes and you're like, fuck just make it a movie please <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know I, I i think at one point they might have been talking about doing a born movie a born tv show but i mean It'd be called a bored identity because <laughs> i'd be bored out of my fucking mind mike <laughs> Yeah, it, it is a tough balance, especially with like like the spy genre, especially because it's sometimes you get a little bogged down in the because there was a show on AMC called Rubicon. It was only on for one season, and it was about this big conspiracy thing, and it was kind of like, and it got it, at times it was so slow moving. It's like, oh, I could, I mean, I like the show, but I was like, oh, I could see why a lot of people did not watch this. Like, yeah, it's just it's like they they kind of. They have like kind of a central concept, and maybe it, it's it's only good for five hours of TV or six hours. But it's like, well, you got to do ten episodes or thirteen episodes or whatever your mandate is. So you got to like pad that out. But anyway, back to the born identity. Wow, we've been we've been really talking about TV a lot. I don't know how. That... Well, well, what what did you what do you think about Matt Damon? Did you buy him in the fight scenes? Did you buy him in a lot of the action scenes? Did you buy him using uh, weapons? I think I think he did enough prep work with the training in, you know, the boxing training, the like the diet he went on, which he still does apparently. Apparently, like boxing became a thing he does now for his physical regimen. Yeah, it's it's one of the best things if if your joints can take it. Because uh, I, because I was dicking around with it for a while, and it's like I just had a, like I had like a new injury every month, and it was like, oh really? Oh yeah. It's like, mm. but that I mean that's whatever. I don't want to get into like why the excuses why I don't work out more, but uh, like he was <laughs> like he was doing the boxing, and then he was doing this Philip like the the martial art that the 
the one guy that he fought with in the apartment. It's a Filipino martial art called Kali. So he was training in that. And then he, I guess he spent a lot of time handling guns. So he would look like he knew how to do it on screen. And that's probably something that has like helped him for the whole like last two decades of his career, basically. So mm-hmm. I think I think he really put in the work to look credible, even though because like we like we mentioned, I'm not trying to contradict our earlier points. I think it stands, but I think I think him putting in that work, it's like he doesn't look like this physical specimen or anything, but he looks like a guy who's looks like an average guy. But then once he gets his hands on these things, like all right, he he knows what he's doing. He could handle himself. So yeah, I I agree. I agree. I think there wasn't any point in watching the movie. And again, this is coming from someone who like, and I'm, most of us at the time probably were like, "Oh, Matt Damon is doing this seriously." Yeah, so, it's like we got the talented Mr. Ripley doing this. What the fuck? I know exactly. I, who saw no that? Point. Did you see that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw. I remember seeing that in the theater. And I was like, "What am I doing there, here?" There is some gruesome murders in that movie. I, 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 yeah, I know, but the movie as a whole, just I was like, "What? This is not for me. This is not my yeah. speed at all." You're not a Gwyneth guy. Yeah, that's 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 part of it. I think. Honestly, I think that's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah. She's like um, she's but, peddling candles that smell like her labia or whatever the fuck. Gordon the Paltrow was like, at the end of every day, I enjoy one American spirit cigarette, and that's my treat for the day. It's like fuck you, Gwyneth. And then I and then uh, I light it with a candle that smells like my box that I sell for sixty dollars <laughs> on the Goop website. I'll fucking never get over that as long as I live. That might be my epitaph on my website: is that Gwyneth Paltrow made a candle that smells like her fucking pussy, like. God damn it. <laughs> we should go. We should get, you know, remember like flash mobs? Yeah. Yeah. That lasted for how let We talk about we a short lived phenomenon. We should get like a thousand people together, buy the most expensive tickets to a Coldplay concert, <laughs> bring those candles in with us, and light them so that. When Chris Martin's playing his songs, he has to smell his ex-wife's vagina. Yeah, and like it's like, wow, why does why does this whole section smell like a Red Lobster dumpster? It's like, oh no, that's just the Gwyneth Paltrow, the Pepper Potts pussy candle. <laughs> Fucking. <laughs> why does the O2 Arena smell like the reason I wrote all these songs? <laughs> we went so off the rails, indeed, so off the rails. Indeed. But I will say, I in seeing Matt Damon. Um, there was no point in the rewatch and I pointed out a ridiculous scene with the guy going through the window. So there's no lack of critique here, but there was no point. I'm watching that saying like, Oh, it looks like he's never done that before. Or that looks like it was a stunt guy or that they had to do like multiple takes to make it work or editing. It, I believed every aspect of, of what he was doing. So kudos to him for that, especially someone who was cast over people who had been used to doing that stuff. And he he did it. And so, and to um, give credit where it's due, I think um, I, Franca Patent also worked out with him because she was like running around too, like yeah, to kind of get in shape. Because Doug Lyman, it, it, it kind of giving up, give you know, kind of that do, doing one of those anecdotes that you know shows how devoted the actors are, like kind of a little bit of it at his expense. He said that. He said that he was going to work. He's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll be in the gym with you every day, Matt. And then he did. He said he made it through one workout. And he gave up. Oh, jeez. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> and and let you know, let's not forget that I'm sure there was some things learned and carried over from his experience with Saving Private Ryan too, in terms of you know dealing with. Uh, oh my you know, god, man! It's like it's so funny how an actor can be like once they're so big, it's like you could forget some of the like really big movies they were in. Yeah, that was because yeah, that was in '98, right? '98. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm sure there's carryover there, but completely different type of um, use of weapons or type of uh, specialty. So, I you know who knows, but I'm sure it's. You know, I guess what I'm trying to do is protect us from saying like this is the first time Matt Damon ever had a movie where he had a gun in his hand or something. It's like no, no, but he wasn't known for this. So I think that's what we're trying to get to here, but. I thought he did a you know a great job in the role, and again you know to round out my initial point about it was I really do think that he, um, you know brought that uh, that sort of John McClane everyman to the role that is supposed to be this sort of superhuman role and humanized the hell out of it and made the audience be able to relate to it and maybe that brought people around for a second go around it, it allowed people to think like oh maybe I could bring you know, my wife to this movie and she'd enjoy it. You know, that type of stuff that takes a movie from making 70 million at a box office and maybe barely breaking even to being something that can uh, launch a franchise out of it, which it certainly did. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, the, the budget for this movie was somewhere between 60 and 70 million, I think. And it made, I think, what is it? Uh, 241 at the box yeah. office. But then we've mentioned this on the past couple podcasts not in a row but i think it's come up recently quite a bit like the thing matt damon said about how with diminishing box office returns and the fact that the home video market is basically eroded that you know, studios are less willing to take a chance like for this one when it came out on uh dvd it says the thing i have here says back then for, for the first three months it was out it made thirty six million just on rentals alone, which it's it's smart, yeah, in how they marketed it. Because if you look at the cover of the DVD, there's the two of them kissing in one of the quadrants of the cover. So you're going, you know, for people who don't remember the video store experience, as tragic as that is, and I mean that, um, you're going in with your girlfriend or you're going in with your wife, and you're like, oh, it's Friday night, we're gonna rent a movie or something. You know, we're going to rent one for the kids. And when they go to bed, we're going to watch our movie. And you walk in, you look at the new releases. And usually it's like the same movie, eight boxes of it or whatever. And if you just saw him on the cover running with a gun in his hand and then like an action shot of him kicking someone in the face, harder sell. But if you see almost a, a 25% of the cover with the two of them in this impassioned kiss, clearly, I believe, no shirts on, then you could sell that rental, maybe get a, a, a DVD purchase out of it. And like like you say you know it adds life to that movie and um creates opportunities for for more where today that really doesn't exist as much especially in the physical media sense of course yeah what did you since you brought it up what did you think of the love story between the two uh i it's unrealistic for someone of her position to have wanted to still have anything to do with that um because if you think in, in reality, she would want to get that money and get as far away from him as possible. Um, I don't think it's like the greatest love story ever told, but it was serviceable enough. Um, she, for some reason, like, and this is the superficial element of it. She just doesn't move the needle for me. So that's that. That's a different aspect of this too. But I also like the fact that it wasn't, you know, 
Kate Beckinsale or, you know, somebody who's like Julia Roberts. Cause then you're like, all right, so this is fucking conspiracy theory. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> this is a movie where you have two big stars like he, like Lyman did with Mr. and Mrs. Smith with uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. I like the fact that she was sort of a, an unknown so that it felt more of like this girl just got dropped into this situation. Um, I think that was, I don't know if that's on purpose, but I think that's much better than if we got someone who was popular, like Jodie Foster. You know, I can go down the list of somebody who was uh, a more of a household name at that time. Uh, so I think that helped it. But I, I, I wasn't like, oh, my God, like this is fucking going with the wind right here. I, I you think, know what I'm saying? I, so. Yeah, I think your attitude's pretty similar because I know Doug Lyman had a lot of reservations about them having a love story at all because oh, okay. Okay. of the circumstances of how they met and – like you know, she sees like she watches it. She watches him like dismantle this guy with his bare hands, and then the guy kills himself. Like she throws himself out a window. Like that scene originally was supposed to be. She was gonna be like hysterical and crying and screaming, and then she decided to play it up, play it more like she was in shock. But not to you know use another work of fiction's line of reasoning. But I don't know. Maybe like the extreme stress they were under. It's like then you know once they have a like a private moment, it's like hey, let's blow off some steam. And then it's like, that's not yeah. going to be like a love story for the ages or anything like that. But it's like, right. you could kind of see. And then I think Doug like, Lyman's justification was that they just like, some, like uh, sometimes women are drawn to men with dark, mysterious pasts or whatever. But I wouldn't even want to read too much into it. I would think more of just the situation they were in. Like they go through all this crazy stuff and she, for some reason, feels some kind of I don't know about obligation, but responsibility. Like she, she just like kind of wants to help him. She doesn't want to like leave him in a lurch, and then that kind of brings them together. Even though it's a ridiculous situation for a civilian to be in. Yeah, that, I mean that that's a good point because I think I don't know if there's a term for it. I just tried to quickly look it up, but they're like you go through. Yeah, it's like, all about Stockholm syndrome, are Because that's like about kidnapping. That's like kidna- no, not stock. But 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 there's something about like if. You had to go to a funeral or there was like a near-death experience. There's something about the natural human aspect of life and creating life. And in, in us instinctually is the act of creating life, which is sex, that um, is just drawn up in us when we experience something that has to do with the loss of life. So I think there could be certainly something to that in reality that makes sense in this situation too and they found themselves in that situation but, yeah much like the so. psychological toll of murder we can't really know the aphrodisiac effect of, of violence or not but there's all the abstract talk about how sex and violence are always linked anyway so I mean, you can always go off of that did you have a favorite moment in the movie um I mean, I, like a- anything where he was just being awesome. Like the car chase was great, and the the, the car chase they got the same guys. It was good. They, they yeah. got the same guys who did all the car chases in Ronin, which were all awesome. Um, I I think I think one of my favorite actually I I I thought one of the things that I thought was funny was even though I kind of talked about how um you know the the skills of the elite spy become almost um farcical. But they did do that really cool scene near the beginning where he's by a bus or something, and then he just vanishes. And that wasn't like an editing trick. It was like they just did something. They just did some trick where it was like, oh, just move with the bus. And like the way they had it framed, it was like it looked like he disappeared. And that was before you even knew like what he was about. I mean, what a, I, think, I think one of my favorite scenes was just at the end where he just – and that was the studio – 
getting involved where there was like this that one last shootout where he just he just shows why he's this total package it just like that's important they yeah. they send uh because i i you know that's one of those things like we talk about how the studio interferes and sometimes it's publicized and it's publicized and people criticize it or sometimes it's publicized like hey maybe, maybe they kind of knew what they were doing it just depends but i think if the movie ended where it was just like him and conklin talking and then like they got into his backstory and stuff and then he just kind of walked off into the sunset i think that would be extremely anticlimactic oh 100 percent. Yeah, yeah i agree yeah. uh what about you did you have like a fi- like a scene that jumps out um i think the encounter between him and the professor clive owen and how he takes him out I thought uh, I liked the the tactical nature of it. Um, I like how he created the um, the. Uh, it, it felt almost. There were some scenes in this movie that felt like it could have been in a Batman movie, um, and some of the like traps he set, and this like he he blows up so that the black uh, plume of smoke uh, ruins his his vision of where. Yeah, he kind of figures where his line of sight stuff. is, and. Yeah, or so what? that type of stuff, very Batmanish, uh, like that, um, and then ultimately how he takes him out, and he has that moment where they sort of realize how similar they are. And I think that scene is probably the best because we didn't really touch too much on Clive Owen. And well, he's he only in the movie dialogue. for I think three or four minutes, all in. Right, right, but you know, I think we both like Clive Owen. No, he's and, you know, yeah, he's certain... great. If if, yeah. if if I haven't recommended it before, there's a show where he plays a doctor in like a hospital in the turn of the century called The Nick. And it was only on for two seasons. I think it's on, on HBO Max. By the way, we've been talking about streaming services all the time. I have to apologize to a lot of our viewers, um, listeners, <laughs> I should say, because I I guess I just didn't realize how hard PCU was to find, and it still is. Um, I was out with my cousins this weekend, and they, they, you know, they listened to the show. And my one cousin, likes, you know, he likes to watch the movie right before he listens, and he's like, I can't find PCU anywhere. Do you know where I could find it? I was like, I, no. I'm like, I had, I had somebody track it down for me. But so, like, did you? Where did you watch this at then? Because I, I, I don't know what streaming service it's on. Born Identity, I found on uh, HBO Max. Oh, cool, cool. Okay, so it's not like yeah. a really yeah. obscure one or anything. No, hopefully it's accessible. Yeah. Um, I mean, who knows about the movie I'm thinking about picking next? But oh, uh, see, I, I think I know where we're going, but uh, that's cool. Um. <laughs> I guess like, I, I we should we're at the ninety minute mark or ninety five minute mark close to it. We've been going on a lot of tangents, so thanks for sticking with us through it. I uh, I guess kind of like <laughs> kind of wrap up. I mean, did you have anything else you wanted to get into? No, yeah, I think you know, especially as someone who's not super familiar with the sequels. Uh, again, I think it's important that this movie um, doesn't require them in order for it to be enjoyed. So I think that's huge. Gosh, I think every movie should be able to be watched on its own, uh, you know, desert island style. If you find yourself with a you know a copy of it and you can't watch the other ones, but um, again, you know, I really like how they were able to take an action thriller but also make it grounded. Um, while still having really cool action scenes and like you brought up the chase scene I thought that was really well done and um, not over the top um, for a movie chase scene um, so I, yeah, I thought a lot of this movie was just really well executed and they trimmed a lot of fat where they needed to and it had a nice flow to it so overall really easy watch for a movie that's closer to two hours than not 
Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's been a long time since I watched it, so I'm glad you picked it, buddy. Yeah, thanks, man. I pre- I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you you liked it upon revisiting it. I did too. Um, kind of found a few. Like I said, I mentioned some of the things that kind of bothered me watching it this time, like 20 years after the fact. But <laughs> you know, this movie, like I mentioned before, you know, it has this kind of legacy where I think it has kind of altered the path of or how like kind of the method of making spy movies. Like, I think it's had a much broader influence on the spy genre and action in general. Because I think before this movie came along, and I'm not, I'm not going to say, like, I, the way its approach for shooting fight scenes, like how kinetic it is and fast and, like, the quick cuts, like you mentioned, I think that's had such a, such a lasting effect on action. Like, I think these fight scenes are, like, until... When I saw these fight scenes, I remember the first few times I watched these movies in the theater, especially this one and the, the follow-up, Born Supremacy. I didn't feel like that watching action scenes until the Raid movies came out. Uh, oh, okay. like, have you seen those? No, the Raid not. 1 and 2? They're Indonesian <laughs> action movies. The fight scenes are fucking ridiculous. They are great. Uh, All right. It might be something... Wait, that might be your assigned reading one day, but... You know, the legacy of this movie, you've got the, you know, its effect on how, like, how action movies, like, specifically uh, spy action movies are shot. Like, their approach to fight choreography. You know, you have the franchise itself, which was actually five movies. And uh, I think they actually, now that I think about it, I think they actually did try to do a Bourne TV show on USA, I think. It was like, yeah, I think it was just, oh, it was called Treadstone. And it was about, oh, and okay. it was just about it was about the program and different assassins in the program and I don't think it was all that successful because I just remembered it existed. I might have watched a few episodes of it, <laughs> but um, and no no brand recognition. <laughs> and also, you know, as we talked about Matt Damon as an action hero, this really kind of got that whole ball rolling. You know, oh yeah, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if he's been as credible in other things. But he, you know, he always commits. Though I know you said you're not the biggest Matt Damon fan, but I think he kind of, uh, you know, I, I I like him at the stuff I see him in, and I think, you know, maybe he's not like the the first choice you would have as an action hero. But I think when he he always like kind of like when like when he did Elysium, I remember he got pretty jacked for that movie. He shaved his head, even though oh, it was yeah. kind of like a. Yeah, I don't know, kind of a wasted effort, but there was also mm-hmm. a video game that came out for this that I really liked, but they, they, they did that video game thing where they take something that happened for, like, five seconds and they make a whole level out of it. Like in the GoldenEye game, how, like, they had the frigate level, even though he was on that ship for ten seconds in, oh, yeah. in the movie, and they made a whole fucking level out of it with hostages and all that shit. But it had, like, a real, like, the, the key feature of it was it had this really great hand-to-hand fighting system at the time. I mean, the, I mean, the game was, like, came out like 2006 or something but um Mm -hmm. you had all these really cool like punching combinations and counters and stuff like that and but uh i think i think this movie's legacy in terms of its impact aside from obviously being its own successful franchise and giving matt damon like the new like thumbs up from audiences for doing this type of movie going forward is that um like i think we've both touched on it it gave movie studios the confidence to know that they can tell a smart movie, a smart action movie. Um, not that they, there haven't been ones predating this, but the type of spy action thriller stuff um, that they can, you know, tell those types of stories again. And it's not, it doesn't have to be this over the top, uh, overly simplistic thing. 
and they also at the same time don't have to go too far with the complexities of it so uh overall really really solid movie um you know it's just over 20 years old and it still holds up pretty damn well yeah you'll have to let us know what you think of the uh born supremacy when you get around to watching it i will it. i certainly will I will do that. All right. So it sounds like uh, uh, <laughs> sounds like the discussion's kind of coming to a uh, kind, of, kind of coming to a conclusion. Uh, thanks for bearing with <laughs> us through all the tangents and all that. A little worse than usual. <laughs> or, hopefully, hopefully, they enjoy them though. You know what I'm saying? Or better. I don't know. Maybe it's like <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a little less stodgy than some of our. Maybe other they ones. listen for the tangents. Maybe I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to get a little more feedback on that. But uh, yeah. Uh, thanks yeah. again for checking us out, and then uh, we have to. I, I'm pretty sure I know where we're going next, but Johnny, what's uh, what's what's next on the agenda for us? So next up, and you know, not super positive on when we're putting this out because I know uh, I'm heading to London the week that we would be doing this. Oh wow! Um, oh yeah, for celebration, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we'll keep you posted and, and let you know when we're putting this out, and make sure you subscribe to the show because that way you don't need us to tell you when it comes out; it'll just be in your feed. Uh, so we appreciate anyone who's been following us and leaving us reviews, and whether it's Apple, Spotify, where you, wherever you prefer. And Anchor, our, our hosting site, actually just uh, fully integrated with Spotify. Now it's known as a part of Spotify. It's, the word Anchor is gone now. But wherever you do listen to us, we're still there. So please make sure you do subscribe so you know when our uh, twice-a-month episodes hit your feed. Um, but yeah, next up... Uh, off the heels of a Best Actor Oscar win, we're going to revisit a movie that we've been talking about doing for a while that seems to keep popping up in the conversation or trivia and stuff. So uh, it may not give us our biggest audience, but it's certainly going to make a lot of people happy that do listen to it. We're going to revisit a star-studded 1993 comedy known as Airheads. Nice, nice. This is, I think this is the only time I've known what you were going to pick. <laughs> only, I, only I had a time. couple on the docket i i still wanted to obviously do good will hunting but i didn't want to go back to back matt damon's uh also i was thinking like let's let's go like turn the dial back and do another funny one uh and do the sort of ping pong thing there so i i don't need to ask you i know you enjoy airheads so uh <laughs> yeah i can't wait we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll, there's a lot there's a it's, there's a lot of quotes to talk about like that's one of those movies that's not a terribly long movie but there's so many little nuggets to just talk about i think we're gonna have like a really fun conversation talking about that movie which is a very underrated comedy from the 90s extremely extremely yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So anything else, Mike, before we uh, hop on out? No, man. Take us home. All right. Again, thank you, everybody, so much. Uh, we look forward to being with you next time where we talk about uh, the Oscar-winning Brendan Fraser-led Airheads. But until next time, we hope you're enjoying your spring. We hope things are going well for you. And as always, we'll see you next time right here on Just Like the Movies. So be kind, rewind, relax, and we'll see you around. Look at this. Look at what they make you give.